Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenter in today's episode is Cameron Brooks. Six years ago, Rod Dreher's book, The Benedict Option, sparked a thousand conversations about how Christians should and should not try to respond to our post-Christian culture. Could the answers to our 21st century culture war concerns really be found, even metaphorically, in a medieval monastery? For those of us who think the past still has a lot to teach us, it wasn't as strange an idea as it might sound. Naturally, one of the objections was which version of monasticism to investigate. Not everyone was so enamored with Benedict. In a recent essay in First Things, the Irish novelist Paul Kingsnorth, a relatively recent convert to Christianity, argued for a different model, the Desert Fathers who followed in the footsteps of Anthony, a wilderness spirituality exemplified in the life of the Irish monks. Ever since Thomas Cahill's 1996 book, How the Irish Saved Civilization, became a bestseller, we've had a new appreciation for the way that those who retreat from culture can actually do the most to preserve it and pass it down. My Worldview Academy colleague, Jeff Baldwin, gives a great explanation of this process in a lecture inspired by the life of St. Patrick. To get us up to speed and set the stage for this episode, I reached out to Jeff and asked him to walk us through the relationship between the Irish monks and the culture of the ancient world. So many years ago, a man named Thomas Cahill wrote a popular history called How the Irish Saved Civilization. And in that book, he asks a fantastic question, which roughly translated as this, how do we have Plato today? How do we have Sophocles? How do we have Aristotle? We all know that Rome fell. Usually the date we give is 476 AD. And when Rome fell to the Goths and the Visigoths and all the barbarian tribes, the barbarians were not careful about preserving manuscripts. Obviously, within the Roman Empire, they had done a fairly good job of preserving Plato, Aristotle, Sophocles, the Homer, the the great books. Um, but when barbarians are overrunning your city and they're burning and they're looting, they're not pausing and saying, well, don't burn that. That's the Iliad. Don't burn that. That's the Republic. Uh, they're just burning and looting. And so the question becomes, how did anything survive the fall of Rome? And the answer, of course, is complicated. It's not, history is never uh, tied up in a neat little bow. Um, but, but a lot of the answer does hinge on St. Patrick and specific, specifically the conversion of the Irish uh, to Christianity. Um, I won't go into the whole story of Patrick, but when he was when he returned to Ireland as a missionary in 432, um, which by the way, real close to the fall of Rome, when he returned to, as a missionary to Ireland, the Holy Spirit worked through him in a way that's almost unprecedented. Um, by some estimates, 
more than 120,000 men and women came to Christ through the ministry of St. Patrick. So the, the, the stage in Ireland is, is pretty stark. Uh, the Irish practiced piracy. They were pagans. They also practiced slavery, kidnapping. Uh, they even engaged in human sacrifice. And uh, there's still these, these rude altars around Ireland today with uh, three holes in the headpiece of the altar. And those holes are for the heads of the victims of human sacrifice. So Patrick walks back to a very dark land. Uh, he's often described as the first missionary to the barbarians. And that's because these the Irish are outside of the Roman Empire. They are... Um, pagan in both their beliefs and practices and uh, and through God's great providence uh, Patrick leads thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of men and women to, to Christ and that's where we pick up the story today um, because the way the Irish chose to follow Christ I think was a little idiosyncratic at least in one way and again this all comes from the book How the Irish Saved Civilization by Thomas Cahill um, but when the Irish converted and then began to hear about their brothers and sisters in Christ in mainland Europe and in the Roman Empire suffering for their faith the Irish got mad uh, but they didn't get mad for the reason that you would think. They were mad that they didn't get to suffer too. So in other words, they, they heard about uh, Roman Christians being thrown to the lions. They heard about Roman Christians being dipped in wax and lit on fire to light garden parties for the emperor. They heard about the intense suffering of those fellow believers and they were upset that they didn't get to suffer in the same way for Christ. They referred to this particular martyrdom as the red martyrdom because it was marked by blood. And uh, they, they were upset that they didn't get to bleed for their faith. Uh, when a country sort of wholesale becomes Christian, like Ireland did, uh, there, there wasn't much persecution to go around. They all trusted Christ, and then they all believed together. So the Irish did this very characteristic but also very odd thing. They invented a second martyrdom. They were upset that they couldn't participate in the red martyrdom, so they invented the green martyrdom. And the green martyrdom was this idea, basically, of being a hermit for Christ. The way that you suffered was that you went off into the woods, um, you were alone, you faced um, all the privations of rain and cold, um, hunger, all, all of the difficulties that come, come with living alone in the wild, and you suffered in that way for your faith. That would seem to be the end of the story, and certainly there were green martyrs in Ireland, but the, the funny thing about that was that the Irish also tend to be a gregarious people, and so what would happen is that uh, one hermit would stumble across another hermit in the wilderness and say, uh, what are you doing? And they'd say, well, I'm, 
suffering for Christ. And the other one would say, me too. And then they'd sort of get together and share what uh, books they had, especially uh, what books from scripture they had, and begin to study together. And so actually you wind up getting these uh, little rude monasteries. Monastery might not be the right word. Um, maybe <laughs> rude university might even be a better word, but you get these little clusters of green martyrs all meeting together and sharing their manuscripts and, and studying and, and talking together. And uh, you can already guess this is going toward the answer to Thomas Cahill's question, what happened to Homer and Sophocles? How did we get all these folks handed down to us? Uh, when the Irish trusted Christ, the Irish became people of the book in a very serious sense. They not only uh, viewed scripture as the word of God, but also valued all books. Uh, the uh, Celtic alphabet is invented something like a hundred years after Patrick, Patrick's mission to the Irish. So um, I always, when I talk about worldview, I always talk about the fact that uh, we should notice that when the Irish converted, it wasn't just a um, spiritual conversion that narrowly impacted a little part of their lives. But in, in reality, it, it impacted everything about them. Uh, the practice of slavery, ceased within Patrick's life, lifetime in Ireland. Um, you get this incredible valuation, not only of scripture, but of books in general. And that's what's happening in that green martyrdom as the hermits are coming together and sharing their books. Well, eventually the Irish realized, oh, uh, we're not suffering that much with the green martyrdom. The red martyrdom sounds really, really terrible, getting thrown to lions. Uh, green martyrdom was supposed to be terrible, but here we are all together sharing books and hanging out. And so they finally invented their third and final martyrdom, which was the white martyrdom. And the white martyrdom involved the worst thing that could possibly uh, happened to an Irishman, and that was forced exile from their home country. They decided that the way they would suffer most would be to commit to leaving Ireland, never to return. And this is how then you get sort of that reseeding of mainland Europe, uh, especially with books. Again, uh, you've got Goths and Visigoths running all over the Roman Empire and sacking and looting. And then here now in about 600 AD, suddenly you have uh, these, these little Irish monks who've committed to be to, to the white martyrdom uh, going in onto mainland Europe setting up shop and again founding these kind of rude monasteries slash universities and the picture i always have in my own mind is the picture of uh, from the movies the lord of the rings when they uh, light the watch fires in that one great scene you see uh, a watch fire flare up on a mountain ridge and then you look way down the mountain ridge in the twilight way way down and then suddenly another watch fire flares up and then way down the ridge line again that third watch fire flares up and that's that's really how i think of what those irish monks are doing 
as they return to the European mainland. They're carrying books with them. They are interested in what the Bible has to say and what the Bible has to say about Plato and Homer. And they are talking about it, and, and they set up shop in these little places, and, and civilization just flares up like a watchfire again just uh, a couple people um, saved by the work of of Christ on the cross uh, deeply concerned about understanding their faith suddenly you get these little pockets of civilization on mainland Europe again and uh, this to me is still hard to believe uh, it's pretty fantastic but um, <laughs> some massive European cities that we think of as cultural centers and kind of think have always existed. Some massive European cities began as Irish monasteries. Both uh, Vienna and Salzburg originally were Irish monasteries. So the, I think that watchfire uh, analogy is apt, right? You you suddenly see uh, these men set up shop, and then this this entire city, this entire civilized city, blaze up uh, around them. And that is the story of the three martyrdoms of the Irish. They didn't get to participate in the Red. Uh, the Green martyrdom was largely viewed as a failure because they couldn't really keep to themselves. And then the white martyrdom is kind of the answer to Cahill's question, how the Irish saved civilization. The Holy Spirit got a hold of them. They became people of the book. They became deeply, uh, deeply concerned with understanding their faith. And they carried that with them uh, to help begin the restoration um, of mainland Europe. Thank you, Jeff, for that explanation. I really appreciate your willingness to share it with us. If you, our listeners, ever have the opportunity to hear Jeff speak in person, I highly recommend it. Now, it strikes me that if we're going to learn from the example of those ancient Irish monks, if we're going to restore what is lost in our world, first, we may need to withdraw from the skirmish and go in search of it ourselves. We may need to retreat in order to accomplish the retrieval, but always with a mind to return to the world for the restorative work. Now Cameron and I are going to unpack this idea. At Grace, one of the things we talk about a lot is our shared longing for more community. And when Christians get together longing for more community, it isn't long before we start thinking about the different forms that Christian community has taken over the years. And one of those that seems to have a perennial fascination for people is monasticism. Obviously, in the Reformation, there was this famous suppression of monasteries and Certainly in England, all the old abbeys ended up falling into the hands of wealthy landowners and things like that. And so oftentimes we have a romanticized, nostalgic view of what monasticism must have been like, a view that's not wholly accurate, I think. But it's surprising to me how often Christians I've known have had, let's say, like a... 
an urge to revive some monastic practices. Probably the best example would be connected to the daily office. There is something about the discipline of daily prayer in the monastic setting, the format, the various prayers connected to the hours of the day that a lot of people, certainly in the modern world, who feel so distracted and and as if there's so many obstacles in the way of spirituality, find refreshing. Cameron, I was wondering if in your theological and spiritual journey, you had ever shared that sense that maybe there's something the monasteries have to teach us about Christian community. Yes, but not until recently, actually. I would say for a long time, I was pretty ignorant of that history in general because I grew up Lutheran. So, you know, the church started in 1517, but in, in college, when I had a chance to study church history in more depth, we, yeah, we read about St. Anthony, some of the other early monastics. And while I always found them remarkable, I never quite understood it either. It seemed unnecessary, you know, (laughs) from my vantage point, like that's nice that you're that zealous, but you don't have to do that. Right. You know, you know that until more recently when I, I don't know, maybe it's just maturing in my faith, feeling the pressure of living, trying to live out your faith in the quote unquote world and seeing the appeal of breaking free, breaking off with a community of believers to be more serious, more faithful together in some kind of exclusive context. So that's where I'm at. Yeah. And I don't think that's unusual. You know, it's probably not the case that there were a lot of people in the church who were thinking, you know, I wish I could go live celibately in a monastery somewhere. (laughs) But there are aspects of the experience, the idea of focusing Mm -hmm. on spiritual life, the idea of disciplining ourselves, maybe decentering work as a thing we derive identity from. And putting something like community and communal worship in the place that that more individualistic vision is taken. I think those are a lot of the things that people find, well, you know, suggestive about monastic culture. So I thought it'd be interesting in this episode if we talked a little bit about the history, because I don't think it's well understood, certainly not outside of, uh, let's say, Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox orbits. Certainly in Protestantism, we tend to have a fairly negative view of monasticism. And I thought we could also talk about maybe some recent developments in culture war and attitudes towards culture that are drawing on models from monasticism to kind of make a case for how Christians ought to live in the culture as well. Uh, do you know much about the origins of monasticism in church history? Uh, just a little bit. I mean, <clears throat> so th- the story typically goes something like this, that early Christians started to spread around the Roman Empire, and eventually, with the rise of Constantine, Christianity was so successful that it's, you know, 
it brought in the the Roman Empire himself, and and then Constantine had a hand in legalizing Christianity and and um, essentially secularizing the faith throughout Rome because of that mixture of politics and faith. That's you know how, how the story goes, and then at that point we start to hear about certain Christians feeling like this secularized, watered-down version of the faith is not what it was meant to be. So we need to, again, distance ourselves from the city and go be more devoted in in the wild, typically. So St. Anthony the Great was one of those. Maybe the first, um, I, was, I was reviewing the book... Uh, Life of St. Anthony by St. Athanasius earlier today, actually, I was looking through some of that. And, and he, you know, he grew up in a wealthy family. He had lots of land, sold it all, just felt compelled that to follow Christ seriously, he had to, he had to literally take, you know, Jesus commands and go move out into the wild. And at first he was by himself. So he was more of a hermit and other people started noticing what was going on and wanted to join in. So that's how I understand it. And then of course there were, there were more monasteries that developed across Italy and then eventually around the world. And here we are today. Yeah. And I I think in the way that you described it, uh, we're painting with a broad brush, but you do bring out, I think some important themes. So uh, two kinds of monastic expression, let's say. One of them is the hermit, yep. right? And getting away from it all on my own. The problem is when you go out to the desert to be on your own, then all the other people have gone out to the desert to be on their own, end up coming together. And now you've got a community of monks rather than just one guy out there doing it alone. And so we have, you know, on the one hand, the idea of the loner, and the other hand, the idea of the separated community but both of those things are in reaction to something, right? It, it's this sense that with the legalization and popularity of Christianity, that something has been lost. Now that everybody's a Christian, uh, you're seeking a more authentic Christianity. I think that's relatable, right? It, it may not be relatable to you if you're listening to this, the idea that you would leave your life and go live in the desert or something. But you probably can relate to the idea that you'd like to pursue a more authentic faith, that expressions of faith in our culture often seem very superficial, very commercialized, uh, very distant from what we find in the New Testament. And so there is a desire to turn away from that towards something more real. I would also say it seems to me, and again, oversimplifying, that part of that urge is away from institutional Christianity towards something more individual that is focused less on doctrine and theology and more on experience and spirituality. And so again, I think it's a relatable thing because a lot of people in evangelicalism feel that there's been an overemphasis on doctrine and theology at the expense of experiential Christianity. And so there's a desire to reconnect 
with the spiritual side of the faith. Um, strange to even think of it having a spiritual side right. as opposed to the whole. But but again, I think it's the reason why these movements, although they may seem quite remote, when you know a little bit about them, become more relatable. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's something to this that uh, that's that's worth thinking about. Yeah, I was also earlier this week reading about St. Benedict, and he had a similar story to, to Anthony, where had a nice Roman education, but became disgusted with the culture and wanted to pursue a more authentic faith, and he kind of had a similar story. But one one difference, I think, that I notice between what was going on back then and perhaps contemporary expressions that we're seeing is that they really seem to think the salvation of their souls depended on this move into the wild. They thought they could not be Christians say in within Rome, that if they stayed, they would be, their souls would be you know drawn into temptations and they'd be destroyed and they'd lose themselves. So they had to leave and go out. Whereas it seems to me that, Christians today that I see talking about this, they see it more romantically, like you said, where, oh yeah, that'd be so nice if we could all just go out into the into this community and we're all we all agree together and we can <laughs> grow gardens or whatever it is, yes. you know. But it's not it's not so much I don't hear people saying like, no, you cannot be a Christian in New York City or in LA. Yeah, no, that's a good point because I think there is a difference, and and maybe it has to do with um, the urge to be saved, opposed to the urge to do, let's say, soul care. Yeah, um, that a lot of the appeal in you know modern terms to these ancient movements is as an adornment, you know, like a a thing that you could revive to sort of re-energize your practice, maybe develop yourself more. Whereas that's not, you know, why they did these things. And I think the sense of urgency was was more, it was a little bit more like, um, this is a, a dated reference, but in the novel, The Mosquito Coast, like the guy leaves, takes his family from the modern world and goes out into the wild to try to essentially like a survivalist to experience this authentic world. But part of it is that sense that being in society is so corrupting that if you're in it, you're going to be assimilated by it. Mm -hmm. And so it is that desire to not be assimilated that, that drives the action. So I don't want to be sucked into the world's way of thinking. I want to be able to pursue something more spiritual. Um, you recommended an essay to me that I found really helpful in this um, by Paul Kingsnorth that was published in First Things. And he actually has written for First Things before and wrote a very moving piece about his own conversion from being a sort of Wicca devoted environmentalist to becoming Eastern Orthodox uh, relatively recently. Uh, Paul Kingsnorth is an accomplished Irish novelist 
and uh, his writing is is well worth reading. But the piece that you recommended to me is called A Wild Christianity. And it really is a good example of what we're talking about, where 21st century person is channeling some of these hermit-like monastic impulses. And in thinking through this stuff, I think gives us some good insights that we could learn from. Yeah, so he he sets it up explaining the night of his 50th birthday where or he spent, you know, he spent that night in a cave somewhere in Ireland and experienced a rather severe storm that came in. And he he told the story, you know, he told, you know, a few stories of of different monastics and hermits in particular who had spent time in those very caves around Ireland. And then was essentially drawing parallels between what he was trying to do and yearning for, in a sense, and the lives that they actually lived. But in the end, he kind of comes down saying, well, he he ended up going in the middle of the night. He went down into his tent because <laughs> because water was getting through the cave and he, he didn't want to put up with that. So he we went and slept in the tent and woke up and it was you know nice and beautiful out. And something about that move for him suggested the a difference between how Christians are today, the fortitude that they perhaps don't have that Christians used to have. But the question that he's posing, it seems to me, is whether it's time for the church again today, broadly speaking, to re-enter the wilderness. And I think he's speaking, he really is speaking about the church, not not just in certain individuals, but if the entire Christian body needs to spend a season in the wilderness, not for the rest of its existence, but a season to learn new discipline and faithfulness and reconnect with God before returning, quote-unquote, to the world. Yeah, so there's, there's two movements in his way of thinking. There's the retreat, and then there's the return. Yeah. And the return is is the interesting part, I think, because we think of the retreat, you know, getting away from the world. But he points out that in many of these lives, at a certain point, the saint who has retreated into the wilderness is recalled to duty by the church and is, in a sense, coerced, you know, dragged sometimes unwittingly back into the world where he now has resources to offer uh, because he has done this work of retrieval on his own. And so what's fascinating to me about this essay and why I think it's, it's worth reading, we'll put a link in the show notes, is that he contrasts his idea of the value of what he calls cave Christianity to another popular model in recent history that's been proposed, which is the Benedict Option. Rod Dreher famously wrote a book called The Benedict Option, which argues that because of the turn that modern culture has taken, Christians more and more need to follow the example of the monastic orders, like the Benedictine order, remove themselves from the culture at large where they are unwelcome, and essentially nurture their institutions off in the margins to 
nurture the next generation with the idea of a return later, that these institutions become a springboard so that you can return to the culture at some later point. Mm -hmm. That's been debated back and forth, and people have proposed all sorts of alternative options to, <laughs> to set side by side with the Benedict option. But I think what's fascinating to me about that proposal is that all respect to Rod Dreher, it's one of those things where it seems as if he's recommending a thing that has already been done. Like it, it's a great description of the way that you think about uh, like new evangelicals and, and uh, other religious groups, including the reformed groups nurtured their institutions in obscurity and eventually became an influence and a resource for the larger church and in some ways for the culture at large. But it took this curation over time to be able to, to do that. And of course, now a lot of those institutions are long in the tooth and uh, need some renewal. But so that idea, that's that's the Benedict option, but King's North goes to the same tradition, but he takes from it a really different idea of the solution. He argues that the influence of Christianity on the pagan world was not the result of institution building on the margins that it was the result of the cultivation of otherworldliness, that there was a real difference to the Christians that people wanted to know about, to have access to. In his terms, the hermit leaves society in order to find his own soul. And in finding his soul, he rediscovers the soul of his society, of his community. And in returning to it, in a sense, helps it find itself once again. So that for a lost world, the entry into it of a guide who has found this soulful spiritual reality is of real value. And, and, and a value that surpasses, let's say, like mere institutionalism, where there's no difference in the people it's just the institutions are, are strong. So he actually thinks Benedict, with his uh, rules, suppressed the energy and creativity of monasticism and led to a kind of, you know, ministerial state, the Roman magisterium, which eventually results in the Reformation, which accidentally leads to secular modernity. And if only we could recapture right. monasticism as it was before Benedict, which involves not culture war, but Christians seeking their own souls, Christians yeah. seeking a deeper spirituality, that that's the key. And again, I don't know that, that I can easily say, no, yeah, Benedict, wrong, Anthony, right, or anything like that. But I do find it interesting because there is a need for, for genuine faithfulness, for real Christian experience. And it seems to me that a lot of times our culture war idea of apologetics, of you know, influencing the world around us mm 
if your Christianity is an inch deep, if you don't have a deep rootedness, if you are not, in fact, close to God, what resources do you really have to take on a project like that? And this is the reason why so much of the culture war polemic that comes from from whatever side is so thin if you stop and think about it. So I do think there is something to this, some need to, to connect more deeply with the Christian experience. I'm curious what you think that would what that would look like today. Because he seems to be saying that individuals need to make these moves. They need to go presumably physically remove themselves from their contexts and find their souls or or reconnect with, with God before returning. Did more people just need to be considering that? Yeah, so I, I actually don't think so. <laughs> but that's because I'm not looking with nostalgia on the period and, and thinking it's about recreating the circumstances, right? I think there has been a development in the church where we see not only the benefits, but also the downsides, right? When I think of monasticism as it was, I see as much sort of negative as positive. And I don't think the answer is really to empower hermits. I don't think the idea is to get people to, you know, uproot, leave their families and go live in the wilderness until they, they have found their souls or anything like that. But I also don't think that you can take that and then translate it into, no, we can't leave our lives, but we could organize little spiritual retreats and you could be a hermit for a weekend and, right. you know, something like that. I, I Not to say that that can't be a valuable discipline, but there needs to be a way to pursue these things and still fulfill the really responsibilities that we've been given by God when you think in terms of family and work and all of those things which which are creation mandates. So there needs to be a way to pursue the finding of one's soul, to pursue a deeper spirituality that doesn't mean turning your back on what you've been called to do as a human being. And that, I think is what the institution and organism of the church is all about. And if there was one criticism that I would make of monasticism, at least as a romantic idea, is that it is divorced from the New Testament understanding and reality of the church as the people of God, uh, that it doesn't center that idea of the church and, and often tends to see the church as the institution that needs to be broken away from. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, so it pits the, the organism against the institution when in the church, both of these things are here. So for me uh, in the reformation, we actually have a model which doesn't center one over the other but keeps these two things in dialogue with one another. And so I think it is possible to pursue deeper spirituality within the context of the Christian community that, that God has ordained and not need to break away from it. But we can learn from 
those yearnings and those examples to enrich the way we do that. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe the most practical example would have to do with the life of prayer and our commitment to it. Uh, prayer is one of those things that I think a lot of people wish they did better, where there's a lot of misunderstanding about what it, what it's about. And to pursue individually a deeper life of prayer and to pursue that collectively as well, I think would be one example of taking the, the urge that is expressed in Manassas has been trying to incorporate it into everyday life in a way that does produce similar benefits. Yeah. So that would be your encouragement for a, a restless Christian right now who maybe is feeling like, I just need to drop everything and go move to the mountains. <laughs> it would be. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, I completely understand that whole, I want to get away from it all and yeah. focus on, on me, you know, and I, I realize that's not how you put it, right? I want to get away from it and focus on on him. Yeah. But um, but yeah, I think sometimes that desire to retreat is it needs to be interrogated, right? It's not always for the right reasons. Um, there could be a really good reason to go to the mountains, and it might just be to enjoy the beauty of the mountains. It doesn't have to be. Uh, anything more than that. I but, did that uh, last weekend. Yeah. It was yeah. great. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think, I don't know, like, like for me at least, the, the physical trappings do not have to be the same. Like I think what you're pursuing in the wilderness, the literal desert, is metaphorical, right? That, that it's just sometimes when your physical surroundings sort of in, inhabit and embody the metaphor – things become easier, yeah. right? So I, th- I think the idea of being in a, in a wilderness focuses the mind in a way that being in a metaphorical wilderness doesn't always do, right? So, yeah, so I, yeah, I, I would never counsel people, yeah, abandon your families, abandon your church, abandon your work, and go live, you know, alone in the wilderness or, you know, together with a few other people in a kind of wilderness commune. However, I, I would say that 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 longing for a deeper spiritual discipline and experience is a good one, and that these are things for us to pursue in the life of discipleship. And it's because they've been so neglected in so many different contexts that it seems as if the only way to recover them is, is some extreme act. And in some cases, maybe that's true. Yeah. Well, this conversation has been reminding me of our recent episode on Bonhoeffer's The Cost of Discipleship, because in the first few pages of that book, he has a section on Luther's experience you were talking about the reformation earlier and it's fascinating how bonhoeffer describes luther's transition from the monastery because of course he was a a monk back to the quote-unquote world and i I had brought my copy along because i wanted to read this section i think it's it's really interesting essentially bonhoeffer argues that there was something good in the motion of the monastics that they the you know their desire to commune with god like this is a good thing 
but that ultimately became corrupt because they saw themselves as exclusive and exceptional to the church, kind of like you were talking about. And he ends up just calling the monastery the world. It, it, it became corrupted by the world because of those passions. And so Luther was a part of that, of course, but then leaves. So here's, here's Bonhoeffer. He says, Luther's path out of the monastery back to the world meant the sharpest attack that had ever been launched on the world since early Christianity. The rejection which the monk had given the world was child's play compared to the rejection that the world endured through Luther's returning to it. This time the attack was a frontal assault. Following Jesus now had to be lived out in the midst of the world. What had been practiced in the special, easier circumstances of monastic life as a special accomplishment now had become what was necessary and commanded for every Christian in the world. Complete obedience to Jesus' commandments had to be carried out in the daily world of work. This deepened the conflict between the life of Christians and the life of the world in an unforeseeable way. The Christian had closed in on the world. It was now hand-to-hand combat. Hmm. And... What's so fascinating about that description to me is I think a lot of people understand Luther as going back to the world in a sense of affirmation. Like, oh, the world's good. You don't have to go out to the wilderness. But Bonhoeffer says, no, Luther's movement suggests a judgment on the world saying, you know, none of your sin is justified, but following Jesus, all of that stuff of discipleship that we talked about last time has to be done in the world itself, not removed from it. Yeah, and I think that's the aspect of monasticism that we've sort of forgotten, mm-hmm. that in Christian societies where monasticism was a major factor, there was a dichotomy between secular and sacred, uh, paradoxically, because this was Christendom. Right, Everyone was a Christian, at least in theory, and yet they divided society between secular and sacred in the sense that most people were secular. They pursued worldly tasks, but some people were religious. Yeah. Uh, that's in, in French, that's literally the, the word for them is, is the, the religious. <laughs> and uh, they were the ones who were pursuing spirituality and they were doing it not just for themselves, but on behalf of everyone else. And when you read the King's North essay, that has a flavor of that representational side. That He thinks the hermits go out to find their souls, but in finding them, they sort of find the soul of everybody, you know, and kind of lead the way. So again, there's this idea of this sort of elite, and it's distinct from the everyday people who need to be led. And so the movement Bonhoeffer's describing is not um, no more elites. You know, we're going to shut down the monasteries because we don't want religious and everything be secular. It's the other way around that, that the religious is not meant to be contained in this way or specialized. There should be no secular sacred dichotomy. Everything is, is within the realm of the sacred. And so the, the Christian pursuing his everyday calling is essentially doing it in the in the way that the monk would have been meant to pursue his work in an ideal setting. In that sense, we have all become 
monks and hermits and saints and that sort of thing. Um, and I think you have a good example of that in, for example, the community of Geneva, right? Where there's a huge emphasis on personal holiness, but also a community emphasis on that, a collective so that the whole city, in a sense, becomes the monastery, right? That it isn't a, a task of holiness that is set off to the side and a, and a select few will do it for all of us, mm-hmm. but that all of us have this calling to pursue. And uh, that's different. Now, the criticism, of course, would be, well, not everyone's capable of this. You know, only a select few are able to do these great feats of holiness. That's the same idea that you see in brothers karamazov you know and the idea that you have these these select few very holy saints but most people can't hope to attain to that kind of perfection and so again it's it's a misunderstanding i think of what the reformation accomplishes but it also points us i think to the sense in which it's still so easy to think of the task in terms of what we do. Yeah. Right. And that's the move I think you've got to be mindful of that. Although we have a yearning for a deeper spirituality, if the pursuit of that deeper spiritual life becomes another program of works that distinguishes us from those who do not undertake it, it, it does become a way to minimize the, the work and the grace of Jesus Christ. And so, yeah, so, I mean, that's, maybe we've come full circle and, and all of my sort of Protestant suspicion of monasticism has has surfaced once again. But but I want to take the, the good and the bad, right? I don't want to just be completely closed off and, and not understand the longings. But having understood them, I want to try to understand also where they are properly directed in the life of faith. Yeah. Yeah. I wondered so much too about how Luther's rediscovery of the gospel of grace was, I mean, of course it was informing everything that he was, he was up to, but to the point I was making earlier about how the early monks and hermits seemed almost anxious at times to save themselves from the devil out in the wilderness and that was the only way they could do it that they didn't have a certainty of their faith at times it seemed maybe luther's you know doctrine of justification by faith alone informs how we would think about it you know it would that's i guess it it changes it changes how you're approaching the whole project of monasticism because if you already know that you're saved it's a fruitful question when you yeah. think about it, because when we think about Martin Luther's backstory and the the guilt that compelled yeah. him, you know, when you think about the feats of faith that he attempted to accomplish so that he could assure himself mm-hmm. of his own salvation, I don't know that I've ever thought about them within the context of monasticism. I've often thought of him as as a particularly driven person with a very <laughs> tender conscience and, and a uh, there's another factor I think, which is that, that surely 
the history of the monks and the saints of old would be an example you would aspire to. And if, as you know, Kingsnorth described, one of the Irish saints standing in the shape of a cross in his tiny little hovel yeah. so that he had to stick his hand out the window because it was too small. And while his hand was out, a bird built a nest in it. So he waited till the eggs were hatched. Um, if that was the standard you were trying to live up to, I think you would have the kind of complexes that, that Luther is said to have had because this is what you've been told is necessary mm -hmm. to attain to sainthood. And yeah. so, so again, this is all part of the, the complexity of it, because I, I do think there's a sense in which Kings North is right in directing us away from like an institutional approach to culture war towards a pursuit of otherworldly Christian experience. Mm -hmm. That feels right to me, but I don't want to then say, yeah, return to monasticism and kind of forget the lessons that we've learned from it. I certainly don't want to pursue that otherworldly Christian experience outside of a context of the grace of God right. as the the only Rule. means of salvation. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I keep coming back to the popular phrase that Christians should be in the world, but not of the world. Hmm. And it's somewhat cliched, but I. I think it's true that that's it seems to be what we're called to and that's something that Luther got that that he was called to be in the world and for the sake of the world but never of it and that's what Bonhoeffer's trying to describe there is that move to the world is not a justification or an acceptance of the world's sin but yet it's not abandoning it either do you think it's enough taking King's North's pattern to say the retreat is justified in the cause of renewal. If I understand that there will be a return and that what I'm pursuing, I'm pursuing not only for myself, but for let's say the life of the world. Mm -hmm. Could we at least say like that pattern is a good pattern for a disciple to keep in mind, especially one who feels this urge, right, to withdraw. That if you're going to do that, you've got to do it with this sense at the back of your mind that you're preparing for the return. <laughs> yeah, I think so. And and also that going into the wilderness is going to do battle. I think of Christ's mm. Christ's 40 days in the wilderness yes, was yes. going to like fight with Satan and to fast, you know, and it's in all of the stories of Anthony, he's out there like <laughs> <laughs> having duels with demons. Yes. And I don't think like we shouldn't think of it as sitting on a mountaintop, like dreaming it's, it's spiritual warfare. Yeah. And th their experiences were not Instagram. No monasticism, <laughs> yeah. right? They, they didn't get a lot of selfies on the mountaintop. No. It was a very different experience for sure. I think it's been a helpful detour. You know, I haven't been thinking about this stuff recently. I, I feel like there was a, uh, a more popular kind of obsession with monasticism and sort of the cool idea of reviving communes and that sort of thing. In the early days of the emerging church, it feels like a lot of people were thinking along these lines and, and now it, it feels less 
less the case, but because the Benedict option and things like that are swirling in the culture, I, I appreciate King's North kind of taking a fresh approach to it. And um, once again, we'll put the link in the show notes. And if you're curious about this, you can read the essay and kind of make up your own mind. If we're going to learn from the example of those ancient Irish monks, if we're going to restore what is lost in our world, first, we may need to withdraw from the skirmish and go in search of it ourselves. We may need to retreat in order to accomplish the retrieval, but always with a mind to return to the world for the restorative work.